Now we've come to the last talk of the day. And uh, again, it's a, it's a little bit more of a boring talk. <laughs> because, you know, musculoskeletal, it's joints, it's, uh, it's uh, muscles, it's aches and pains. And uh, <clears throat> the body requires a framework. As you can see, all that activity that happened in the last 45 minutes could not have taken place unless there was a framework undergirding some energetic muscles and some form of a brain to give it activity and direction. A wonderful brain. <clears throat> so it's got its form, stability, you know, to uh, do all those in intriguing uh, demonstrations. Stability. You know, as we walk upstairs, have you, have you thought about it when, you, when you're walking and you, you, you don't have to think that much about it, provided the steps are of equal uh, height, your cerebellum, your brain, measures immediately and so you know exactly where to place your feet. In the dark, in a strange hotel room, you know how to find your way to the washroom in the dark, I hope, otherwise you're... In big trouble, you might end up peeing out the window. <clears throat> but you don't want to do that sort of stuff. You know where to go. Your brain monitors the distance from your, um, for you to negotiate where you need to go. Mobility of this musculoskeletal framework. And when you've been sitting in a lecture for a long time, one of the things that happens when you get up, won't you get up? Oh, he's bragging again. But don't you find that your muscles have become a little stiff as you've been sitting for a while? No? Okay, you can sit down again. <clears throat> it's important to remember that in order to keep this framework, this mobility, this stability, uh, which is held together with ligaments so that it can be firmly kept in place and function so that these joints can work well between the bones affected and, and is affected by muscles which are bound to the bones by tendons. <clears throat> now it's also a very wonderful thing when you do this kind of action interestingly the biceps muscle crosses across this joint otherwise it couldn't bring the arm up now think about this, as the muscle shortens, it doesn't just cause a, you know, it doesn't just shorten and make a triangle, it brings this joint and moves the forearm up. That's because it's beautifully tethered to the bone and runs through certain structures which help it to maintain a mechanical efficiency. <clears throat> there are various types of joints. There are hinge joints. This is a hinge joint. So are these. Then you get ball joints. That's like the femur going into the pelvis. You've got a ball joint, which allows you also in the shoulder joint. is a ball joint. Then you have more stable joints like you've got in the feet and in the ankle where the joints are more stably kept together by tendons. So we have a number of joints and the ability of movement. Interestingly, I learned something 
just three, four weeks ago, which I didn't know before. A cheetah, cheetah, runs at 160 kilometers an hour with no stress. A cheetah never exercises. It can sit around day after day, but when the time comes that it needs to get up and run, it can do that. When it kills its prey, it's unlike a lion or like a leopard. And if you've watched a cheetah, a cheetah has a very narrow profile because it has no collarbones. Did you know that? A cheetah doesn't have a collarbone, which means it cannot swipe at its prey. You can move like this because you have collarbones. It stabilizes the shoulder so that you can do this. Now, as I watched this cheetah, I had the privilege of stroking him. He's as, he's as uh, tame as can be. And as I looked at him, and he purred and he licked my hand. And I was hoping he wasn't getting to enjoy the taste too much. And it was like a big piece of sandpaper that was rubbing on my hand. And he purred away. <clears throat> but as I looked at him and I asked a few questions, they said he doesn't have a clavicle. And that makes him limited compared to many of his other feline sisters and brothers. The other interesting thing Despite his speed, his or her speed, despite their agility, they do not tackle human beings because of the fact that they do not have the ability to use their paws as weapons as well. Just to show you how important it is to have stability in the skeletal structure. And we've got all of that. And that's why when God created Adam and Eve, he said, you will have dominion over all of the creatures. We also have a connective tissue. There's, there's muscle, there's bone, and there's a substance called, a tissue called connective tissue, which those of you who have ever eaten meat or have looked at meat eaters, when you get to the bone of a... a lamb chop or whatever it is, you'll find that you get to an area which is very fibrous where it joins onto the vertebrae of the animal. And uh, you have the same, the same kind of tissue binding the bones together, binding the tendons together, connective tissue which is made mainly of a substance, a protein substance called collagen. They also have varying amounts of elasticity depending on where the connective tissue is. Some tissue is more elastic than others. Um, <clears throat> collagen forms the scaffolding of bone and is a living and essential tissue. Can you think of a place where collagen is and you could touch it right now? Collagen. In your nose, absolutely. And your ear. Feel it. This is collagen. Under the skin, this is collagen. It's firm. It's fairly soft, it's movable. It doesn't break readily, but it can break. And uh, that's what collagen is. It's one of the connective tissues. It's constantly undergoing change. Our bones are undergoing change all the time. 
they, um, there's bone being laid down, there's bone being broken down. Um, it's undergoing molding all the time, and it's because there are two main types of cells responsible for the two functions, one of bone deposition, meaning replacing bone, and bone removal. That means taking it away and shaping the bone. The one that deposits bone is called the osteoblast. It builds them up, B for blast. The osteoclasts break down the bone. Now, I don't know if any of you have had a bone fracture, but when you break a bone, when a bone breaks, you have this whole process going on around the fracture. Initially, where the bone is broken, there is hemorrhage and blood. And uh, that forms a, um, a, uh, a callus, but it also forms the framework for the bone repair to take place. Then it becomes hardened. And often, as you look at it on the x-rays as it's healing, you don't see this nice straight bone. You see a widening of the bone. And eventually, when you take an x-ray eight weeks, 12 weeks later, these osteoblasts and osteoclasts have worked away, laying down new bone on the one side, taking away the old bone on the other side, and modeling it and molding it so you have a new or a newly healed piece of bone which is ready to carry on and do the work that needs to be done. It not only is this change going on when there's a fracture, but it goes on in daily living all the time. And that's one of the important reasons for us to exercise. Not only to do aerobic exercise, but to do weight-bearing exercises. And I've got a very good friend now who, when he goes walking, not only does he take water inside his stomach, but he carries a bag with him on his back. And in that bag, there are a number of bottles of water, so that he's taking an additional weight to do some bone strengthening. Smart idea. We don't only need to do the aerobic exercise, but we need to do weight-bearing exercise. And ladies, this is especially important for you, but it's also very important for men. Because otherwise, you're going to get a disease called osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a very significant issue, a very significant problem, and there are things one can do to prevent it. And one of the important things is to eat an adequate diet. Make sure you get adequate calcium. Make sure you get ad adequate vitamin D. And then, of course, important to get the appropriate kind of exercise. Because as you move around, as your bones move, as your muscles work, they are continually stimulating the bone to uh, strengthen and be strong. The osteoclasts, we've talked about their function and we've talked about the remodeling. Functions of bone gives rigidity to the body. The skull protects the brain. The vertebral column protects the spinal cord. And we talked about the protection of the brain in the, in the talk prior to the last one. Can you imagine the, the, uh, the wonderful thought processing that went into planning how to protect this very delicate tissue, the brain? And it's within a well-structured, well-shaped um, container, encasement, called the skull. Protective for the brain. 
the vertebral column takes wonderful care of the, of the spinal cord. Spinal cord, you heard about this, the, the rabbi's son, following an accident, couldn't walk, couldn't control the bladder. In general, the, spinal, the vertebral column protects the spinal cord from injury. The chest, right in front of the heart, you have a bone called the sternum. The sternum, this strong piece of bone right here, you can feel it. And it's there to protect the heart and the, the lungs and the ribs as well. But not only do they protect, they enable the, the lungs to expand adequately and to relax. And they have a bucket handle type effect. You know how a bucket handle moves up and down? So your ribs are able to move up and down with the muscles, enabling the lungs to, well, to fully expand and to contract and to relax. You see, that, that, is a, that is an excellent point and comes back to the point Dr. Handysides brought out a little earlier. Evolution cannot be one step at a time, even over millions or billions of years, because the, the, there are so many things which have to occur at the same time for systems to be able to function appropriately. It just goes beyond human understanding. The pelvis protects the reproductive organs and the bladder, a very strong encasement in that area, protective. We've also talked about the fact that the bone houses the bone marrow. Bone marrow is uh, very important in the production of, of the various elements of blood, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and so in, uh, at the ends of long bones, in the sternum, at portions of the flat bones of the pelvis, uh, where the very active components of uh, blood formation uh, are made. In children, bones grow at uh, growth plates. Um, these plates are in between the end of the bone itself and the, sorry, the, where the bone ends, then there's a bone plate, and then the, you get to the portion where the joints begin to be formed. And uh, Alan's going to draw one for us. These epiphyseal plates, which normally would be at a point between the, where the joint surface comes, and the shaft of the bone. This is a knee, patella, femur, tibia, fibula. And what you see over there is what uh, Alan is drawing for you is the epiphyseal plates where bone is deposited on either side so that the bone lengthening can take place. Yeah. A cartilage plate, cartilage plate, and you have bone growth elongating on either side of these plates. Ultimately, when they reach adolescence and um, about 19 maturity, 19, 20, all of these have closed, but the lengthening of the bones has taken place. It's an amazing process to see how, and you watch it with children, how they grow in height and undergo growth spurts, but it's facilitated by this very beautiful system of the epiphyseal plates permitting lengthening to take place. 
Oh, this is just a single bone. You get this in every single bone, you'll get these plates so that all the bones can lengthen appropriately. Yeah, and when you look at a, at a child, at a baby's skull, and this is another amazing and miraculous thing. I, I did deliveries of babies probably, I don't know, number of hundred, maybe, no, I don't know, maybe a thousand even. Not how many did you do? Seven? Seven thousand. I probably did about seven hundred deliveries. What amazed me when I was a family practitioner doing them was how the head of the baby would mold as it came through the birth canal. And then when you feel that skull, you can actually feel how the bones are separated still until a certain age so that, that those bone plates could move over and still protect the brain and come through the birth canal adequately. Fearfully and wonderfully made. The bones are surrounded by a very uh, interesting substance or a tissue called periosteum. A very innovative name. Peri means around. Osteum means the bone. So there's this tissue around the bone. And in that tissue, it's very rich with nerves and blood vessels. So the feeding of the bone takes place through that. Also in these long bones, you'll find there's usually a, a, a hole in the bone where the major artery which feeds the bone goes into it. But the periosteum, um, and you know how rich it is in blood supply, if you kick your shin against the edge of the bed and you, you hurt that portion, that's because the periosteum is very rich in nerve endings and nerve supply. There's a classification of bones. There's a, the, the skull is what we call flat. So is the vertebral pelvis. Your femur and your humerus are long bones. And here's some pictures of what they look like. This is a skull. This is a um, vertebral column with the pelvis. And just showing you what the long bones look like and things that you've seen before and you understand generally well. Wherever the bones come together, it's usually around a joint. And um, some joints are important in growing children, but with the passage of time, they may fuse and join, no longer permitting motion. For example, between the bones of the skull, as we've just mentioned, bones in the pelvis. But other joints have a very wide range of movement. Now, I think that basically covers as much as I want us to talk about on the anatomy of it. I'd like us to spend a little more time. Can you switch over? Um, I'd like to spend a little more time on some of the diseases related to the musculoskeletal system. Interestingly, what's going to happen to all of us is we are going to have injury to our joints, degenerative changes to the joints, and whenever there's an inflammation of the joint, remember what kinds of disease processes do we know? There is the congenital, the type with which you are born. Then there's the acquired. What kind of acquired diseases are there? Autoimmune, right? Traumatic? Well, chronic, yeah, absolutely, chronic, uh, chronic or acute, but that's looking at the time period. We're talking about mechanisms. Infectious. Infectious. Neo. Neoplastic. Traumatic. 
So when people break a bone, you can get malignancy in bones, you can get inflammatory process in the bones and the joints. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune inflammatory disease of the bone. You can get osteomyelitis. Yes, go under yours. I think it'll be there. You can get uh, the infectious component, which is the osteomyelitis, a very significant and dangerous disease, even today with antibiotics. And, um, and so we find that there are a whole host of diseases which affect the bones and the musculoskeletal system. Um, we've talked about osteoporosis. That's a very important thing for us to remember when we are working in health ministries. And you may wonder why there are certain emphases with such passion about a balanced, nutritious diet in this class. And that is because we want people to maintain a healthy body, a healthy framework, get adequate vitamin D, adequate calcium, adequate, the B12 is for other components of the body, but almost every cell is dependent on vitamin B12. I saw. Go, go into, go into mine. Okay, so we just to briefly run over the osteoporosis again. Bone is made of collagen, a scaffold, mineralized, and strengthened and made rigid by the calcium. And situations where there's a re reduction in the density of the bones, they become more susceptible to fractures, and that's what we call osteoporosis. Now, osteoporosis is the more extreme component of the disease. The less extreme one is what we call osteopenia. When people go through the DEXA scans, a special scan to look at the density or the thickness of the bone, then you can determine whether an individual has uh, normal, healthy, strong bones or if they're at risk. And um, that DEXA scan is something which should be done every 18 months a uh, year to 18 months, well, 18 months to two years would be an adequate time. One of the reasons that we are very concerned about the uh, problem of osteoporosis is not only the postural change which takes place with aging, but because of the increased susceptibility to fractures. You, you hear about elderly patients who fall and fracture their hips. Uh, particularly a hip fracture is a very dangerous condition in an elderly person because um, if they are immobilized for any length of time, they get pneumonias, they can get clots in the veins, clots in the lungs, and it can be a terminal portion of their life. It can be the lead to the termination of their life. People often say, well, you know, so-and-so was walking along and they slipped and fell and broke their hip. Well, there's a certain amount of debate about that. If there's a significant amount of osteoporosis, they may just in the walking process have a um, rotational injury which breaks the hip and causes them to fall. There's another aspect to that. In some individuals, certain malignancies, and we heard about malignancies the other day, they spread and can spread into the bone. And that can weaken the bone and you then get what is called a pathological fracture. It just strikes me now as I talk about it, what else would a fracture be but pathological? But it's a pathological fracture when it's related to 
another underlying disease process like a malignancy, for example. It's important to take adequate amounts of calcium and phosphorus, uh, and the diet has to provide for these needs to get optimal bone growth. Somebody asked me a question just earlier today, uh, or I think it may have been yesterday, about glucosamine, whether glucosamine is helpful in, the, in joint issues, and the answer is it hasn't been shown to be any more superior to placebo. So glucosamine has not been shown to be of assistance so in joints. Okay, <clears throat> I think what you need to, to think about is, is the availability of calcium. Um, there is this talk about the robbing of the, of the calcium, as you've, as you've just mentioned. Take, for example, kale and broccoli. They have calcium in them. In order, we, we talk about having a um, five to seven portions of fruits and vegetables a day. <clears throat> and uh, a portion of broccoli is about half a cup. Kale would be the same. To get the amount of calcium you would need out of that food source alone, you're going to need to have probably 10 to 15 cups at a sitting, yeah, a day, just to make sure that you're going to get the adequate calcium from that. The calcium absorption from milk is not 100% either. 30%, but it is more bioavailable and is able to be, um, to be incorporated very readily. The benefits of taking a little bit of dairy are definitely um, positive in um, preventing osteoporosis. I have a colleague who's an endocrinologist and we recently were looking at a, an article which we had written, and I asked him, I said to him, what is your thought on the issue related to supplementation of calcium and vitamin D? He said it's absolutely essential, essential particularly in the vegan diet, in the total vegetarian diet, because the osteoporosis that he sees in the total vegetarian in his work, endocrinologist with a special interest in doing DEXA scans, these um, bone density scans, he said is very high and very significant among those who take no dairy products. Just to, to add to that on the issue of the acidity, if you test the urine of uh, a bunch of vegetarians, ovo, lacto, or total, you'll find that the pH of the urine is alkaline. You test omnivores, it'll be universally acid, which I think just bears out the, 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 the argument that has been laid forth there. Just one other point. When you ask the question as to where do vegetarians get their cholesterol from, as you said, they make it. And one of the reasons that the statin drugs work, medication, because they block the manufacture of the body's manufacture of cholesterol. It's not stopping people eating it, because they'll eat it anyway. Uh, but I'm talking in the medical situation, people that have heart attacks and who won't go into vegetarian diet and who have 
excessive cholesterol. You give them a medication, it brings it down, because what it does, it inhibits the body's synthesis or manufacture of cholesterol. So we generally can make enough, but it's always good to make sure you have an adequate amount of the right kind of cholesterol. Okay. Okay. Um, you'll read a, an interesting article coming up in the Adventist world about supplements. And the issue on supplementation of vitamin D is not yet resolved as to how much. It's, it's, it's very acceptable and it's recommended to be given to the elderly, to be given to postmenopausal women, um, and to people who have osteoporosis. Hmm? Exactly, and the people who don't get sunshine. And I think that those are, those are the four significant areas where vitamin D does need to be supplemented. There is an ongoing discussion right now because there have been papers coming out in very reputable journals about the effect of vitamin D on heart health, on the effect of vitamin D on, on uh, neoplastic disease. And uh, there are very reputable groups who are recommending very high doses of vitamin D, like 2,000 plus international units a day supplementation in people who've had a malignancy at some point. But there is not yet the adequate evidence to show that. The same thing of the evidence of, of vitamin D and decreasing heart disease, improvement of ventricular function. There have been a number of papers out on that. But the actual dosage has not yet been fully resolved. So the current thinking of supplementation or, the need, or, or needs for vitamin D on a, a daily basis are between four and 800 international units a day. Now, when you come to your special population groups that we've mentioned, we're looking at, a, at they, they're talking about going between one and 2,000. But again, we don't have um, actual data to confirm that that's what should be the dosage. I don't know if you have other information. No, we don't. We're not sure. And that's why I think it's safe if you're going to, you know, to try and make sure that you're getting four to 800 at least daily. And then uh, if you have special needs, to go up to the 1,000 to the 1,500. Absolutely. Well, get the test done. Well, that's, that's what we're trying to say, is that there are certain populations. The whole issue of supplements, be it vitamin D, vitamin B12, and all those other things that we talk about, you supplement something when it is lacking. Okay. So if there's an inadequate amount of iron, you give iron. If there's an inadequate amount of vitamin D, you give vitamin D. If there's an inadequate absorption of vitamin B12, you supplement vitamin B12. If you're getting a full and adequate diet and everything's going well, there's very little role, if any, for any supplements. That's the evidence. Just recently, if you look at the papers that are coming out, we talked about vitamin E and prostate cancer. We talked about vitamin E and heart disease. We talked about beta-carotene and lung cancer. We talked about um, 
Um, those are the main things that we talked about in, in trials. Vitamin D, yeah, lutein and lung cancer. Vitamin D, there's been a, an absolute plethora of papers, but the actual dosages, there's no certainty at the moment. To answer your question, elderly, postmenopausal, those who are absolutely deficient, those who've had malignancy, and those who live in uh, sun-deprived, sunlight-deprived areas or inadequate amount of sunlight exposure, those are the individuals who benefit from vitamin D. Okay, this just summarizes the, um, the vitamin D along with the osteoporosis management. And I was looking to check the dosage. Vitamin D, 400 to 800 international units a day. Calcium, now here's another issue. That was the one I was trying to think of. In calcium supplementation, looking at calcium supplementation in women, those who supplemented more, there was an association, except in the postmenopausal women, of an increased risk of heart disease. So what many of these studies do is they generate more questions than they do answers. But the important thing is that the questions are being generated and looked at and being discussed, and we need to continue to do that. Weight-bearing exercise, walking, stair climbing, resistance training, and prevention should begin right with young people. Get them moving, get them exercising, get them doing things. We've talked a little bit about arthritis. Oh, has anyone got the um, attendance record? Yes, West took it. Okay, another point which is quite important. In the Adventist Health Study, and Dr. Handyside is going to address that on Friday, I believe, there is a, um, a decreased incidence of rheumatoid arthritis in Seventh-day Adventists who were studied in the health study. It's not a decrease in every kind of arthritis. It's of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, why do we emphasize that? Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease, um, and any arthritis manifests with swelling, tenderness, pain, deformity of a joint. But uh, the disease rheumatoid arthritis presents with very specific changes. There are various types of arthritis. Osteo, which is a degenerative disease. Rheumatoid, a, an autoimmune disease often related to genetic predisposition and tissue types. Psoriatic arthritis, related to an autoimmune process, which affects the skin as well as the bones. Ankylosing spondylitis. You, you see that people get a, um, a deformity of the neck, that they cannot straighten the neck properly. And it's quite, a, it's quite a debilitating disease, because they cannot lift their heads backwards. They've got to do this to look around them. It's also an autoimmune. Lupus, which is supposed to be L-U-P-U-S. Again, an autoimmune disease. What is autoimmune? The body fails to recognize itself. Sjogren's syndrome, scleroderma, infective arthritis. These are the common, commoner types of arthritis. And that kind of change is what you see in um, very advanced, severe rheumatoid arthritis. It's a very debilitating disease, which not only affects joints, it affects kidneys, it affects lungs, it affects um, the heart as well. 
So rheumatoid is a common form of arthritis, and here you see pictures showing the differences. This is osteoarthritis. Most of us, as we get older, you start seeing thickening of your joints, seeing changes, particularly in what we call the distal joints, the joints furthest away from the body. Rheumatoid, as you look at this, there's significant de uh, deformity with swelling of the joints, swelling of the more proximal joints. Proximal means closer into the body as opposed to the distal joints. Um, and then significant changes, not only of the fingers, but of the wrist and of many other joints as well. Osteoarthritis is a degenerative disease. Uh, it's diagnosed usually by physical diagnosis. X-rays may show the classical changes. And here's an important point for health ministries because this is the commonest form of arthritis that you're going to encounter in people who come to your church, who come to your health seminars, who come to your health expos. People often feel, and this is going to be your, the closing part of our talk today, they often feel that if they have joint discomfort, they should not exercise. They should not move. Not true. It's important to continue careful stretching, strengthening, and postural exercise, put the joints through the full range of movements, and there are papers coming out as recently in the last month which show that individuals who have discomfort from osteoarthritis benefit from regular exercise. They have decreased pain, they have preserved uh, joint range of movement, and it makes good sense as to why that happens. Because one of the important things for keeping stability of a joint is having strength of the muscles that keep that joint stable and surround that joint. When you find football players, those big hulky guys who go running around the football field with these huge amount of padding and so on, and their legs are like tree stumps, when they finish playing at the age of 45 plus, when those muscles begin to atrophy and get a bit smaller, and less, strength, less strong, they start presenting with all kinds of arthritis of their knees because they're losing the stability of those muscles which gave them the strength to do what they were doing despite injuries to the tendons and the ligaments of their joints. So it's very important, and that's not anecdotal, it's now shown very scientifically that maintaining a good exercise program, weight-bearing and aerobic, can be very important in helping people continue to be active despite osteoarthritis. Heat often helps in the form of warm compresses, simple pain medication, and I think this is another important thing. If people have pain, treat the pain. It's very important. Don't deny it. Don't say, oh, it's all in your mind, or oh, it's wrong. Treat the pain. Of course, you need to look for the problems with gastrointestinal complications, which can come with the irritation of some of these medications. Those of you who watch um, Jeopardy over the Christmas time period said, give Father Christmas relief from his pain. Just two tablets will give you relief. They don't tell you it's two tablets every day. And I think we need to be cautious about the ongoing excessive use of anti-inflammatories because they not only are damaging to the kidney, 
they are irritant to the stomach, and they may be associated with an increased risk of heart attacks. So use them from time to time if you need them, or people need them, but don't use them nonstop. Um, related to the posture of that joint, so if it's a hip joint, you want to be able to use it appropriately, swing it around. If it's a, if it's a wrist joint, sometimes what you need to do with, with wrists and hands and fingers, is you sometimes need to immobilize them, particularly in rheumatoid arthritis. But I would think it's related to the posture of the normal function of that joint. I think that the rest you're going to have to read about because there is just so much. What, what we need to remember, and I think Dr. Handyside's mentioned it a few times and I've mentioned it too, you don't appreciate what you have until you've lost it or until it's impaired. Let's make good use of what we have. Some of the issues and um, what I have noticed as I compare the practice of medicine here, not only here, but over the years that I've been in medicine, I'm seeing so many people having joint replacements at a much younger age group than they were having 20 or 30 years ago. And I think there are two reasons for that. One of them is because of the increased uh, gravity of our lives. We are much heavier than we used to be. So weight management is a very, very crucial component in alleviating the discomfort of joint problems. I think the second thing may well be a dietary component with osteoporosis. Yeah, but you know, as I, as I, as I, see, I see younger people than, than I've ever been aware of needing the, you know, who are having it done. And I suppose money is a component as well. It just interests me that we see younger and younger people having joint replacements. And what always goes through my mind, and, and I know there are people here, so don't worry about what I'm going to say. What, what, what is a real concern to me is unless those individuals who've had the joint replacement are well instructed, informed, and continue to look at their risk factors, the second joint surgery is not always a lot of fun. So one waits till you know it absolutely is necessary. You do it. They can have fantastic results, but then it's not a cure from never needing another procedure or another intervention. What needs to be done is we need to take care of our health and our risk factors even more aggressively. Thank you for your attention, your time. Any other questions before we go? This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.